Well, the passage this morning could not be more sensitive or difficult, uh, not just because Jesus is teaching about money and divorce. Uh, those topics themselves are difficult enough, and for some of us they are truly painful topics. But the main topic here this, evening is, this morning is even more confronting, uh, even more challenging. Uh, Jesus wants us to understand what kind of a person will be in hell. And the thing that ought to shock us, I think, about this passage is that the kind of person that Jesus has in mind here is not the terrorist, not the rapist or the murderer, but the kind of person you wouldn't expect, the religious person, the moral person, the person who thinks that they are going to heaven, people like you and me. Well, this uh, whole section of Luke's Gospel we've seen is about the question of who will be saved. Uh, we've seen that there is a narrow door that leads to life, and there is a heavenly banquet to which all are invited. But we've seen this some surprises when it comes to entering the kingdom of God. There will be all kinds of people in the kingdom that you don't expect. People like tax collectors and sinners, the, uh, the spiritually poor and lame and blind, uh, people like the prodigal son uh, living in rampant sin, because we've seen that the way into God's heavenly banquet is not by moral performance, but by sincere repentance, acknowledging our spiritual poverty and turning to God for mercy. But time and again, we've, we've also encountered this disturbing truth that there will be some, indeed there will be many, who will think that they're going to be welcomed into the kingdom only to find that they will be shut out. We saw that right at the beginning of this section in Luke 13, 23. Uh, they asked Jesus, Lord, who will those who are saved be few? He said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for I tell you, uh, for many I tell you will seek to enter and will not be able. And uh, this morning then, Luke's attention shifts away from the, the heavenly banquet to which uh, all those who repent are headed. And now he turns to the eternal torment that awaits all those who refuse to repent. It's a, it's a very scary passage. It's a very serious passage because the hell Jesus describes here is a real place and real people will be there. And uh, for me or any other preacher to hold back uh, that fact simply because it's uncomfortable for you and for me, well, that would be profoundly wicked indeed, wouldn't it? Like the person who sees their neighbor's house on fire and doesn't go to warn them. Well, the key to understanding this uh, parable in verses 19 to 31 uh, is found in the context. To understand any parable rightly, you must look at the context. And verses 14 to 18 then give us the essential background that we need to apply this parable correctly. And so we're at point one, God's hatred of hypocrisy. And... Uh, in uh, verses 14 to 15, we, we now leave the teaching of Jesus to hear the response of the Pharisees. And in uh, chapters 13 to 16, there's been this uh, ongoing conversation or conflict, if you like, with uh, the Pharisees. They've been listening in on Jesus' teaching, 
uh, Jesus has been teaching about God's heart for the lost, uh, about how we need to renounce everything to follow Jesus, and how we need to invest everything in God's heavenly kingdom. And he concluded, as we saw in verse uh, 13 there, no servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus is saying, look, either money will be your God and you will love it and you will trust it and you'll look to it for, for blessing and uh, happiness and security, or you will love and trust God and you will look to Him for those things. And there in verse 14, we see the response of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed Him. Uh, chapter 15, they're complaining, Jesus' moral standards are too low. He goes and eats with tax collectors and sinners. Now they complain they're too high. We're told that they love money. They're thinking to themselves, of course you can serve God and money at the same time. I mean, who wouldn't want to serve money? Who wouldn't want to have comfort and pleasure and status and approval and all the things that, that money brings? And so they ridicule. How stupid. And they're completely self-deceived. Because even though they think they are serving God, they're actually serving money. But Jesus sees through it. Verse 15, he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And uh, once again, Jesus uncovers their supreme problem. They are hypocrites. And yes, on the outside, they look religious, and they look moral, they seem upright. But ultimately, their goal, their goal in life is not to please God, it is to please people. They want to be accepted by people. They want to prove before other people that God is, is, is happy with them. And so they put on this, this, this show. And Jesus reminds them that God sees straight through hypocrisy. God doesn't just look at our outward appearance. God looks at our heart. And as God looks on these self-righteous, self-justifying Pharisees, what he finds is an abomination. He finds idolatry. He's, he finds people serving money in the name of God. And God hates it. Very strong words, isn't it? And they're no different, I guess, to the average pagan. Chasing money, fame, approval, and comfort. Except these people do it in the name of God. Of course, there are so-called Christians who do the same thing, serving Jesus because they want money. They want God to bless them, they would say. But uh, this morning, I don't want to focus really out there in the world. I want to focus on ourselves. Uh, it's perhaps uh, you heard last week's teaching and uh, Jesus saying, you can't serve God and money, invest and sacrificially in the kingdom of God. But deep down what you were thinking to yourself was, well, actually, I don't want Jesus to affect my bank balance. And I do quite like the money that I earned from my job. And I do quite like shopping. And I don't really want to sacrifice those things for Jesus. 
And it's very possible for us here this morning that we're doing all the right things. And uh, we're here, we're attending church, and we're leading a Bible study group, and uh, we're serving in a ministry. But deep down, what is in our hearts? Do we love God? Or do we love money? I wonder if your GG leader could uh, kind of uh, log into your internet banking account and uh, perhaps go through all of the receipts in your wallet. What would they conclude about your life? Do you love God? Or do you love money? Now, I remember when I got my uh, first uh, full-time job, I studied as uh, computer science and mathematics at university, and I got a job as a computer programmer. Uh, But before I graduated, people had warned me of the dangers of greed. I mean, I'd been a student all this time with nothing, and then suddenly I had an income. And so the very first day that I started work was the first day that I began reading this book, Beyond Greed. It's in the Smack Library if you want to read it. And I decided even before taking that job that six months later I would quit it and enter into full-time ministry. I began meeting with a mentor uh, fortnightly who would keep me to account. And after all those precautions, I was still shocked by the greed that was in my heart. Uh, In the final week of my work, I had uh, my performance review. I was offered, on top of a good salary, further raises if I chose to stay. And I was shocked by how difficult it was to walk away for a ministry internship where I'd earned one-third of the salary. But that is the idol of money, isn't it? And it's very possible to do all the Christian stuff, but deep down we're really serving the big dollar sign. So what is in your heart? Do you love Jesus or do you love something else? Here's a good test of what might be the idol in our hearts. Is it something that you could give up if you had to? Could you not have that thing, whether it was the money or the career or the relationship? And if deep down you know that the answer to that is no, I could not give it up, well, it may well be that despite all the outward appearances, you're not serving God at all. You're serving your idol. Well, Jesus uh, turns uh, secondly to the purpose of the law and his desire for a true and heartfelt obedience to his words. And he begins with this uh, reminder in verse 16 that we live in the age of grace. Have a look at verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. And uh, Jesus reminds us here that he has brought in a a whole new era. We're no longer under the the era of the law. We're now in the era of the gospel. Uh, And Jesus has been going around proclaiming this gospel of grace. And we've seen that people have been forcing their way in, seizing their opportunity as they're offered forgiveness, and these people crowd in, the tax collectors and the sinners and the prodigal sons. And of course, that's exactly what the Pharisees should be doing. 
rather than uh, seeking to justify themselves through their so-called obedience to the law, the law should have showed up the idols in their hearts and brought them running to Jesus. Now Jesus goes on to clarify here, just because the law should drive us to the gospel, it doesn't mean that the law is now irrelevant. God still requires our obedience, and the law highlights his standards. You see in verse 17, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now we have to be a bit careful here to understand this rightly. The law is fulfilled by Jesus. Christians are not under the Old Testament law. We are under grace. We are under the gospel. But the law still remains the word of God to us. And the law still highlights God's righteous standard that we fail to live up to. And the problem with the moralists like the Pharisees is that they, rather than actually keeping God's law, they minimize it. They, they, they make it less so it appears like they are doing it. But the gospel maximizes obedience. And so the Pharisees obsess over the Sabbath, but they don't love their neighbor. They talk about tithing, but then they love money. Their religion is just one whole sophisticated show to win worldly approval that lacks any core to it. They're just a shell. But the gospel ought to bring real obedience in response to the grace of God from the heart. And uh, nowhere could the, the failure of the Pharisees be more clearly seen than in their teaching on marriage. And so in verse 18, Jesus just takes this one example of the law to show how God's righteous standard ought to drive us to Jesus. Let me read verse 18. Jesus says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, it's helpful to know that in Jesus' day, there were all kinds of uh, debates going on about marriage and divorce. There was one Jewish rabbi called Shammai who was teaching that uh, sexual immorality was the only legitimate ground for divorce. But there was also another rabbi called Hillel who allowed divorce for nearly everything. And so if your wife burnt the dinner or you found someone that you thought was better looking, then never mind, just divorce your wife and go off. And this apparently is how the Pharisees were thinking about things. Uh, we know that from uh, what they asked Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. Uh, they asked Jesus, is it lawful to, to divorce one's wife for any cause? They're minimizing the law of God. And here Jesus reminds us of God's unchangeable purpose for marriage. Now I am aware this morning that this is is a very real and difficult topic for some of us here today. And if you've gone through a divorce, then you know better than anyone else what a tragedy it really is. Jesus teaches elsewhere, marriage is a one flesh union. What God has joined together is not meant to be separated. 
God wants marriages of loyalty and love and grace and forgiveness. And every broken marriage, whatever the cause, is always a departure from his plan and is a deep tragedy. And if your marriage has failed in the past, we here weep with you. But Jesus states very clearly here that remarriage then is adultery. Whether you're the, you are the divorced person who marries someone else or you're the person who marries a divorced person, it doesn't matter. Unless your former spouse is dead, Scripture is very clear that remarriage is adultery except in only very rare cases. Now, it's important for us to realize this is not the only part of the Bible that teaches about marriage and divorce. In fact, uh, it's not even the main topic of the chapter. It's just one verse here. And, uh, but where it is discussed elsewhere, there are two legitimate grounds given uh, where divorce and remarriage is therefore allowed. And the first one's in Matthew 5.32. Jesus says there, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So unfaithfulness to the marriage bed is one legitimate grounds. And the other grounds comes in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So you are married, you are, you're, two non-Christians are married together. One becomes a Christian and the other leaves, the non-Christian leaves the marriage. Now, just because those two exceptions are allowed in Scripture doesn't mean that uh, divorce is always the right thing to do. Of course, God loves forgiveness and he wants reconciliation. But what these uh, exceptions do mean uh, is that we must be very careful to quickly judge someone who's gone through a divorce. There may be legitimate grounds. We don't know what has happened. And actually, we're really in no position to judge at all because Jesus also says in Matthew 5.28, these words, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in her heart. So perhaps we haven't committed adultery through divorce and remarriage, but... Which of us here this morning can honestly say, never a single lustful thought. In the end, we are all sexual sinners and we're in no position to judge one another. But Jesus' main intent here in speaking of marriage is to highlight the unchanging standards to which God's word calls us. And secondly, how when we rightly understand the law of God, how it should expose our sin and therefore bring us running to Jesus. Of course, it doesn't matter whether it's our failures in marriage or it's our failures with greed or lust or pride or whatever it is, the purpose of God's law is to drive us to Jesus where forgiveness can be found. And so this morning, whatever you have done in the past, whether, you've, uh, whether you are divorced or whether you've committed adultery 
or whether you slept with your boyfriend or girlfriend, or whether your heart is filled with insatiable greed and lust, the good news of the gospel is Jesus offers forgiveness. Jesus came for prodigal sons. He comes to seek the lost. He goes to the cross to die for sinners. And so no matter what has happened, come running to Jesus. Force your way into the kingdom as you throw yourself at his feet. Well, all that then is the context for the parable in verses 19 to 31. And the point of the parable really is to show us the consequences if we fail to repent and come to Jesus. Put simply, Jesus teaches here there's a real place called hell to which real people go. And whilst we might not like speaking about this topic, it is a topic that Jesus talks about more than nearly any other. Uh, It was right there at the beginning of this section of Luke's gospel. Let's come back to Luke 13 on the screen. Someone said to Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? He said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for I tell you, Many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast And the point of this parable is that there will be people who suffer under the judgment of God. There will be people who are cast out of the heavenly banquet. There will be people in this place called hell. And as I said, the most scary of all, many of those people who are there will be genuinely surprised. Just like the Pharisees seeking to enter, justifying themselves, thinking that they're okay and condemned. Now, we shouldn't be any doubt that Jesus has particularly in mind the Pharisees here. They love money. They despise those in spiritual poverty around them, like the tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees are represented here, especially by this rich Man, and so the context is crucial. It's not just a a parable about rich and poor people as if all poor people go to heaven and all rich people go to hell. No, the contrast is between the Pharisees who love money and so refuse to repent and the sinners and the tax collectors who do. It's just like the parable of the prodigal son. The younger son comes back and he's welcomed into the banquet and the older son stays outside, except this time Jesus finishes the story of what happens to the older son. And the parable begins here with a great contrast in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Clearly he's very rich. Purple, of course, signifies luxury. Fine linen was worn by kings and he's got enough money to have a feast every single day. Day. This is the kind of person the Pharisees would love to be, living the high life, you know, holidaying in the Maldives and uh, dining in five-star hotels. 
But the contrast couldn't be greater, could it, in verse 20. And at the gate, at his gate, was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even dogs came and licked his sores. So he's poor, he's hungry, he's unclean. I mean, it's really a revolting picture, isn't it? The dogs coming and licking the wounds. And it's outrageous because he's sitting outside the rich man's gate, overlooked, despised. The rich man's not named, but Lazarus is. He might be forgotten by the rich man, but he is seen by God. And what follows is a great reversal. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation to whom God had promised blessing. So to say he's in Abraham's bosom, which is a literal translation here, it means that he's with Abraham in the kingdom of God, feasting. And once again, a great contrast. Verse 22. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here. And you are in anguish. Hades is the uh, New Testament equivalent of Sheol. It is the place of the dead. And here we see it is far from God in a place of conscious torment. And so death is not the end. We don't believe in annihilation. We don't believe in reincarnation. Death ushers each of us into an eternal destination, either with God or apart from God. And the words are very strong here, aren't they? Torment, anguish, flame. Now, of course, uh, Christians through the centuries get a little bit carried away with this, with their artworks, don't they? Uh, trying to imagine what this uh, reality would be like. But if those... Uh, pictures are kind of gruesome. Imagine what the reality must be like. The actual experience, no comfort, no consolation, eternal, conscious torment. And sometimes Christian asks, is it, is it really loving for a God to send people to hell? You know, just because they didn't believe in Jesus, so they need to suffer eternal, conscious torment. Isn't that a bit petty for an almighty God? Well, that all depends on what you think of the crime, isn't it? And can I suggest to you that God here is entirely just and we may well have underestimated the gravity of failing to honor God. After all, God is the loving creator of everything. He is worthy of all glory and majesty and praise. And so to deny God the infinite glory that is due to his name even for a moment is an infinite crime worthy of eternal punishment. But more than that, note, note how the rich man in hell here, he remains completely unchanged. He's still 
looking down on Lazarus as his servant. You know, Lazarus, come here and help me. All his life he fails to help Lazarus one single bit. But now in his utter selfishness, he still expects Lazarus to come to his aid. And of course, that is why hell is eternal. People do not repent. Forever, they continue in their stubbornness and face their punishment forever. What is perhaps more scary is that this place of hell is a place of no return. You see that in verse 26. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So there's no second chances. There's no movement from hell to heaven. There's no way Lazarus can help even if he wanted to. You can't buy yourself out. You can't bluff your way out. You can't talk your way out. There is an unbreachable chasm and it is a place of no return. And so this uh, Catholic notion of purgatory, where there's some intermediate place where you can suffer for a while in a place a bit like hell and then get on to heaven, well, it's a nonsense. There's no going to and fro. The decision is final. And that means how we live life now really matters, doesn't it? Now, if you are here today as a non-Christian, can I really commend you on coming and investigating the Christian faith? It's very good to seek the truth. And let me invite you to investigate Christianity thoroughly and make a very careful decision about it. Because if this is true and Jesus is Lord and you fail to respond to him and hell is a real reality, The consequences are very great, aren't they? You don't want to be wrong on this one. And the sheer scale of the consequences demands a diligent investigation into whether it is all true or not. It's very serious. Well, the parable ends with a great warning in verse 27. The rich man says, Then I beg you, Father Abraham, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And uh, sometimes uh, people joke, you know, if I go to hell, it won't be so bad, all my friends will be there. And such a person hasn't understood hell at all. All good things are gifts from God. Friendship is a gift of God. Creativity, joy, love, affection, all of them are gifts of God and all of them will be absent from hell. There will be no friendship in hell. And if you have truly understood the horror of hell, you would not want to be there and you would not want anyone else to be there either. And so the rich man begs his family would be warned. Perhaps we have uh, non-Christian relatives ourselves that have died. If they could speak to us, here we see what they would want to say. 
don't come here. Don't follow me. Don't come to this place of torment. But with all Jesus' parables, it ends with a surprising twist. Verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. The rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. And here is the parable closes. We discover the real reason why any person will end up in hell. And it is simply a failure to respond in repentance to the word of God. And the shocking thing in uh, this parable is that if someone will not listen to the word of God, they will never listen. They will reject all forms of evidence, no matter how spectacular it might be. You know, your, your, your friend comes to you and says, look, if Jesus gave me a sign that he was real, then I would believe in him. No, they wouldn't. All the evidence they need is right here in the Bible. We spoke earlier of the law and the prophets, and the law of God highlights beyond a shadow of a doubt God's righteous standard and how far short we fall. The prophets look forward to the Savior that we need, who would bring forgiveness. But if you refuse to respond to the Old Testament, you will not acknowledge your sin, you won't acknowledge your need for a Savior, then nothing will convince you to become a Christian. It's one of the problems with thinking that if you could just convince your friend that Jesus had risen from the dead, then they'd become a Christian. It doesn't work that way. I was uh, preaching at a camp recently. The topic was true comfort. There was a number of non-Christians there, and I spoke on this very passage. I explained that there is no lasting comfort in this world, uh, but if we accept Jesus as our Lord, we will enjoy the eternal comfort of heaven. Uh, Lazarus here is comforted. But if we reject Jesus, all we look forward to is eternal torment. And one of the non-Christians said, I know that Jesus died and rose. I understand that if I reject Jesus, I will face eternal judgment. But I don't want to become a Christian. And if it is true, I will face the consequences. He understood the message. But he did not repent. Why? Because his idol was money. His heart was on earthly things. And he would rather deny Jesus and face a life of eternal torment than deny himself and a few temporal comforts of this life. The reality is that there is ample evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, either of these two books on the screen here will uh, outline it very clearly to you. Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ, Frank Morrison, Who Moved the Stone?, but in the end, whether or not someone becomes a Christian is not a matter of the evidence. It's a matter of what you love in your heart. Who you want to serve. Will you serve God or money? 
Will you serve Jesus or yourself? That's what it comes down to in the end. And if you will not, in the light of the Word of God, acknowledge your sin and the need for a Savior, you will ignore the evidence so that you can live for yourself. That's how it works. And so the person in hell will be the person who fails to respond to the Word of God. But I guess that the real punch in this parable comes from the context. You see, in the end, it's not really about how good or bad you are. God's law shows that we're all sinful. The real question is, do we repent and turn to Jesus or not? And Jesus says, hell will be full of people who forget God and chase what the world desires for money, career, success, comfort, approval. There will be people from your office block there, people from your university lecture hall, people from your family dinner table. But not only does Jesus say that, he says that hell will be full of religious people, people who justify themselves, who go through the the motions of external religion and moral performance but have hearts full of idols. And by that criteria, there will be people sitting in churches, occupying church leadership, serving in ministries, and perhaps among us today, who, like the Pharisees, are on a path that leads to hell. Because beyond the outer appearance, their heart is far from God. And so if you are here today and you are still a non-Christian and you have not turned to Jesus, can I please warn you with all seriousness, there is a place of eternal torment. Please don't go there. All the world's riches are not worth keeping to risk hell for. Please listen to the word of God and repent. And if you're here today as someone who claims to be a Christian, but in your heart of hearts you know that you're in danger of living for money, then can I again please warn you with all seriousness, there is a place of eternal torment and there will be people who looked religious there. Please don't let it be you. Listen to God's word and repent. Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 5 on the screen. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It's not just one place. 1 Corinthians 6 says the same thing. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy 
nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so whoever you are, whether you are a sexual sinner or you love money or whatever it is that you love more than God, again, can I plead with you, don't be deceived. Judgment day is coming. Please repent. And if we will turn to Jesus, we will be forgiven. And Jesus will change us from loving money to loving God. Now that passage finishes in the following verse. Next slide. Some, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And so if we turn to Jesus, we will be totally forgiven and welcome to heaven. And what if we are Christian here today? Well, let's once again be absolutely clear that our faith must impact our wallets. As we saw last week, the Christian must use all available resources to serve the kingdom of God. And in the end, our love for God will be seen in how we treat the poor. We can't be like the rich man here who closes his heart to Lazarus. We can't close our hearts and our eyes to the needy around us. Of course, we must be wise, but we can't do nothing. Uh, a good way to support this would be to serve in the social concerns ministry or give to it. And you can write on the blue card if you want to do that. But ultimately, we must continue to look beyond the physical needs to the spiritual needs. Because money will help a person in poverty, but it's only the gospel of Jesus that will save them from hell. And so if we truly believe that hell exists and real people go there, then we must warn one and all of the danger. Otherwise, we're just like the man with the, the burning house next door who says nothing. Maybe you have family. Maybe you have friends. Maybe you have colleagues or classmates. Maybe you do need to invite them to the guest night. Or maybe you just need to invite them to read Luke's gospel with you and think about who Jesus is together. But whatever you do, don't do nothing. It's too important for that. If people live for this world only and refuse to hear God's word and repent, we can be sure there is no hope. There is only hell. And God doesn't want them to be there. That's why he sent his son. And that's why God celebrates when every lost sinner is found. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that this morning that you are loving enough uh, to tell us the truth. And uh, Father, we pray that you'd help each one of us this morning to, to take your word to heart, not to mock it or ridicule it, 
but to uh, respond rightly in repentance. And uh, Father, whoever we are this morning, whether whatever lies in our past, we pray that you'd help us to repent of our sins and come running to Jesus as our loving Saviour. And we thank you so much for his death on the cross where he bore our judgment uh, to save us from hell. We thank you that you offer us a, a place at your banquet table. And uh, Father, we pray that you would once again help us to share your heart of compassion uh, so that we reach out to those who are still headed on this path to destruction. We pray, Father, that you would save many uh, and you'd, you would use us in this endeavor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.